The older I get, the more of that old song, It's a Small World After All, rings true. And especially true when it comes to Virginia Tech research. It seems like almost every day I'm reading a different story about research that's being done and discoveries that are being made as a result of an international collaboration. So I'm often wondering what it is about people working together across international divides that really seems to help drive this work forward. I mean, is it just magic when you get people from different backgrounds working together towards the same goal? Well, Virginia Tech's Ruth Mahanja was kind enough to talk to me about this very subject. And spoiler alert, those international collaborations do seem kind of magical. Roop is the Lewis A. Hester Chair in Mechanical Engineering and also the Director for Strategic Research and Innovation for VT India. We talked about the value of international collaborations, the power of intersections, and how he believes those really drive innovation, as well as some of the work he's doing right now with a material called graphene, and how international collaborations are helping get this potential wonder material to the point of me being able to get a raincoat made out of it. I'm Travis Williams, and this is Virginia Tech's Curious Conversations. I'm really curious, having done a lot of international collaborations, what what do you think the value is of collaborating internationally when it comes to research? Well, let me start by saying my favorite phrase. I'm very fond of saying uh, research is global and education is global. Because actually this is not a, frankly speaking, a nice thing to say. Uh, It actually is uh, an imperative today. Because the problems facing humanity are pretty global in nature. Climate change is not local. If something happens in India or something happens in China, it is going to impact us. And to be frank with you, uh, Travis, if you look at United Nations survey of millennials from X number, hundreds of, hundred plus countries, they put climate change number one. That was one problem that they were facing. And if you look at Nobel Prize winner Smalley's list many, many years ago, 2004, he was at Rice University. And, you know, he had again climate change as number one problem. So whether it is the Nobel Prize winner or it is the millennials, we are thinking as engineers, as scientists, as educators, as students, as leaders of tomorrow, we are thinking about problems which are facing humanity. And if you list the top 10 problems, whether they are by Smalley or by millennials or from the National Academy of Engineering, you will find there is a commonality. And all of us, whether we are scientists or engineers or humanists or artists, all of us have a role to play in solving the major problems facing humanity. So, in long answer to your question, it's not a luxury anymore. And I think, as especially from engineering as a land-grant university, it is our moral, I call it a moral responsibility to train our engineers to learn how to deal with engineers from different parts of the world. I can guarantee that our engineers in their lifetime will have to deal with engineers from India and China and Europe. If you just think of the first two countries, half the population of the world, that's what it amounts to pretty much. So I think it's not a luxury, but global international research is a must for us. What are those benefits you get when you collaborate with people 
that live in different areas of the world than you or are from different areas of the world than you? So, uh, you know, as you know, I was uh, the first permanent director for the Institute for Critical Technology and Applied Science at Virginia Tech. And I came here in 2006 to Virginia Tech. And for 10 years, we moved it from small rented space at CRC to the big institute it is today. And one of the things I used to say there, my another favorite phrase of mine, buds of creativity blossom at the intersections. So when you bring multiple perspectives to solving a problem, that's when the innovation takes place. And I'll give you a concrete example. For example, uh, you know, to when I was in University of Colorado Boulder, we had a National Science Foundation Center, and this was between engineers and scientists from different parts of the world, different parts of the university. And then we had another center between the doctors at CU uh, Medical School, CU University of Colorado, and the CU College of Engineering. Now, when we started talking to each other with the doctors, we took some time to learn each other's language, but, you know, they would ask me questions which, you know, as an expert in the field, you normally, when you are dealing with people who are working in the same field, they don't even ask those questions. But sometimes it was the simple questions coming from other guys, right, that made you think and you made you think innovatively. Number one, when I'm going to a conference and I have some name and fame in the field, I'm very particular, I'm very focused on what do I say? You know, I'm, I want to pre preserve my prestige, right? And my ego comes into play, right? But when I'm dealing with doctors or other people, you know, hey, I don't have to preserve my <laughs> fame and name. And sometimes it is the questions, but they bring a different perspective. They ask different kind of questions. To solve big problems these days, it requires multiple perspectives. It requires intersections, right? And I gave a TEDx talk some time ago, and it was a intersections, incubators of innovation, right? And I give the example where engineers and biologists come together. Engineers and NGOs come together. Okay. So engineers and, bio, you know, the doctors come together. So I think in solving these big problems in answer to your question, we want to bring multiple perspectives. And not only perspectives from U.S. side, okay, you know, we can do a place like ICTAS, but when you deal with engineers from India and China and Europe, they bring different perspectives, right? And sometimes it is out of those different perspectives, innovation can come up and we can come up with a new innovative solutions. And, you know, some of the best arts, works of art are from the intersections between different civilizations. So whether you bring civilizations together, are you even bring roads together? You know, if you are, you want to go in a different path, you have to have the intersections, right? So intersections are very important for solving big problems. That's very encouraging, especially the part about asking uh, people asking questions. I feel like that's part of my job. And so um, in that light, I have another question. So I'm also curious, what's VT India's role in research at the university and, and in cultivating some of these international collaborations? So first I had to uh, make another sentence that, you know, the, uh, 
when we are looking up at setting up a campus in every continent at one time from Virginia Tech. And our previous former president, uh, President Steger, went to China, India, and uh, South Korea to set up, pick up a site for setting up a campus in Asia, Virginia Tech campus in Asia. And the reason I'm bringing it, you know, we talked about setting up in India, number one, it's the largest population-wide, the largest democracy in the world. And in U.S., we have the oldest functioning democracy in the world. So bringing the two democracies together, that by itself is very powerful, even though it, at that time we used to say that the democracy in India is pretty chaotic. And now I can say even though both the democracies have a chaos, right? but still there is a value in bringing the two democracies together. That's what we value. And then in the spirit of a democracy, the dialogue, that open dialogue that takes place, and the idea of not being constrained by what the big brother is looking at you and what you can say, what you cannot say. So having that free exchange of ideas between among engineers, between a largest democracy and the oldest democracy, that in itself is very powerful. In addition, we have a lot of technical strength uh, among in, in engineering and sciences in India. Uh, you know, if you look at the original five IITs, Institutes of Technology, they are a force in the universe. They are a force in the country, in the world. For example, I shared with you, uh, I can share with you that 25% of most the startup companies in uh, Silicon Valley at one time, a few years ago, they were started by IIT graduates. Right. So that's how powerful they are. So bringing that talent whether they come here as graduate students to Virginia Tech, you know, we are trying to get the PhD students, top-notch PhD students. We can get cream of the crop. Okay. And they come here and they bring their intellect with them, they bring their training with them, they bring their perspective with them. And they are the ones who sort of help us accelerate our research in areas which are not only benefit, of benefit to the United States, but to the world at large. So having that access to the pool of talent, talented people, you know, for example, in Chennai, where Virginia Tech India is uh, right now headquartered, is considered the Detroit of India. Every major car company is there. Right? So working with them, solving their problem, we can also solve the problem with the Ford and the, uh, uh, you know, of course, they also have a presence there, but, you know, we can bring the talent from both uh, both countries here. To give you a last example is that an IBM and they, they set up something in India and they found that the number of patents produced per employee was higher in India than in the United States. Okay. So we bring that kind of, you know, the synergism, the leveraging. They, they learn from us. Those, those folks learn from us. We have a culture of asking questions, to be honest with you. We allow our kids to ask questions of parents and, you know, the kids. I normally tell them, kids can tell me that you may be the, actually one of my children did say <laughs> that you may be the big, uh, one of the top professors in the country, but that doesn't mean everything you say is right. <laughs> so that kind of dialogue between the questions are between our students and the faculty 
you know, that's what they can learn. So, do they not have this, some, a similar culture of asking questions in India? Not as much as we have it here. And, and I think, you know, we can bring that, you know, remember asking questions, bring the innovation. Yeah, well, that, that is fascinating. Well, I know one of the, uh, the research projects that we recently, you recently featured in a VT News uh, article about was related to your research with graphene. And I was curious if you could just tell me, like, what is, what is graphene? So, graphene is a, you know, it is so-called the wonder material, next wonder material. It is a 2D material. Now, two-dimensional material means that if you look at the thickness of a sheet of graphene, it is like one less than a nanometer. Okay. And now, nanometer is one billionth of a meter, right? If I take my one strand of hair and if I look at the thickness, not the length, that is 10,000 nanometers, right? So, we are dealing with stuff which is really small. So, what happens is, uh, and Trevor, this is uh, very, very interesting. What happens is when we take something big, you know, like at a large scale, macro scale, then we go to micro scale, whether these are the chips that we transistors or the diodes we make, which are in the chips. But then a point comes when you go to the nano scale, you know, when you are going the miniaturization from macro to micro, properties don't change. Okay. Uh, not because you are a small, a drop of water, for example, it has the same properties as a glass of water, right? But at the nanoscale, properties suddenly change, okay? New phenomena arise at the nanoscale, and they are different than the properties at the micro and the macro scale, okay? For example, graphene, the so-called wonder material, it has the highest thermal conductivity known to humankind, okay? is 5,400 watt per meter Kelvin. You know, for example, if you think about uh, copper, you know, it's X number of times greater than copper. And it, mechanically, it is very strong. It's the strongest material. You think of diamond, you know, they are strong, but, you know, the graphene is so many times stronger, some few hundred times stronger than steel. Okay. So these are some of the, these materials have wonderful electrical properties. They are very electrically conducting. They are mechanically very strong. They are thermally very conducting. They have good optical properties. So small amount of this material, when you can make a composite from this small amount of material with another material, you know, suddenly property change. I can take plastic. One of the papers we recently published is called GFRP. A glass fiber reinforced plastic or polymer. You add 1% by weight of graphene and it increases its mechanical strength. It increases its impact strength against fracture. So small quantities of this material, we can use this material as hydrophobic. That means water doesn't touch it. Now imagine, Travis, I have a heat exchanger or a tube, right? On inside of that, I coat it with graphene. It's hydrophobic. Water zips through it without touching the walls. No friction, no pressure drop, right? So, you know, you save a lot of energy. And uh, that, you know, so for, I can take a jacket, I can coat it with graphene, and rain comes along, rain just drips, it doesn't even touch my jacket, right? It drops off. So it can be, we can make uh, tents for GIs, and those tents, you know, okay, so we'll coat them with graphene and the 
it rains or it doesn't bother right it just slips off what is what's the challenge why are we not why are we not creating me a raincoat out of graphene well we are we are right now making it but you know it's pretty expensive problem is the conventional method you're talking about the wheat in your story the conventional method of making graphene the so-called wonder material is from graphite graphite is a critical material you know sir most of it 100% of synthetic graphene graphite 70% of uh, mined graphite comes from china and even if we leave all the politics aside uh, but regionalization or monopoly of any critical resource like graphite which is now a critical material for our electric cars electric vehicles it's not good for anybody so and the process the graphene is made from graphite and current process that is used it's a pretty chemicals intensive and and also environmentally not so great and it's very expensive a 1 gram of 1 gram of graphene made from graphite commercially available is like 450 dollars a gram okay now remember on one side i told you it has all these wonderful properties right but then how do i exploit those properties remember i mentioned as an engineer we want to do something useful for society <laughs> but how do i exploit the property if it is so darn expensive it is true i need a small amount but still it's pretty expensive so we wanted to come up with a process you know and i just came to my i one of my during my long walks i said you know i mean it's a carbonaceous material why can't i make it from coal which is plentiful and i just told my postdoc in the lab i said uh doctors lee uh, i think let's try see if we can make it from <laughs> coal and within two weeks she came up and said yeah i think we can make it <laughs> so that's how the uh, and not only that we found we can only use one teeny bit one acid and not even as strong as the other acids and now we have been able to show that in the laboratories we can make it from bituminous coal we can make from anthracite coal we can make take it from coal refuse from appalachia and you know so we have done it with the indian coal we have done it with the korean coal so we have a recipe that we have filed the patent for and uh, you know uh, so if we follow this process we are doing a very extensive cost analysis and also the energy used to make the 1 gram of graphene and also the carbon dioxide footprint by making graphene by different methods i am pretty confident that by the time we are all done we will show that our process is very cost effective it is environmentally much better we don't have dispose of you know the amount of water required to dispose of these acids you know that itself is a problem so if we can reduce the cost by a factor of 10 to 15 and make make it environmentally friendly and if we can demonstrate that we can now start exploiting the properties of this wonderful material at a much larger scale so that's the invention that we have it's getting a lot of excitement but we have shown last thing i'll mention travis on this one it is not only the cost effect or the chemical effect the fact that when we make composites 
with graphene, with plastics or with graphene, glass fiber reinforced plastic. Its mechanical properties are better than if you make the composite with graphene dried from graphite. So it's not only that it is bad, economically better, but as an engineer, what is of exciting to exciting to me is that I can get better mechanical properties. I can bet, get better biological properties. Wow, that sounds like from you know everything from being able to create products that are better, uh, just better products that are more affordable for people like me. Talk about having a, a positive impact on society, being able to use coal. Uh, with everything involved in that, to do something like that, that, that is a tremendous, I mean, they talk about that's a tremendous impact. Well, I think that's why we're getting some publicity on that one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, related to that project, what role did international collaborations play in, in that process? So, you know, we finally were able to publish a paper in a very prestigious journal called Carbon. And that was in 2020. Although, you know, we discovered the process in 2016, not 20, around that time. So, once, the pub, once you some, publish something like that, the rest of the world is not sitting idle. They are reading the paper. They say, oh, wait, instead of graphite, we can make graphene from coal. Then immediately faculty members at Rice University or other universities in China, everywhere, they want to get into it. From a Virginia Tech perspective, it will be nice that we can keep our uh, leg, extra leg, uh, leg that we have over, the, over other competitors because we invented the process. We have the recipe. We are holding it tight, right? By the time they get to use it, you know, it will be six months to one year even if they start finally figuring it out. So to keep, stay competitive and stay ahead of the competition, we need a lot of workforce. We need a lot of researchers working in this area. This is where our researchers from India, in BT India, for example, we have right now four or five researchers. One of them is a Hoki. Uh, and so those researchers, I would say at least on 50, 50 to 60 percent of their projects, they are using coal drive graphene. We transferred the technology to them. It is being Virginia Tech India. As long as they use it for research purposes, we don't have to worry about it. But suppose they commercialize it, then they have to pay some royalty licensing fee to Virginia Tech. Similarly, we have another collaboration with Thapar University, between Virginia Tech and Thapar University, an MOU was signed about five years, four years ago. Under that, we have a center of excellence in emerging materials. So we have again brought it from pretty much nothing. Right now, it is a very thriving center with about 43 doctoral students, about 65 faculty are involved in that one. They made a new floor for us for our center, and we probably will get a new building altogether. So now, at least 30%, one-third of those students are working on cold drive graphene. So suddenly, while I have only a few people working here in cold drive graphene, I have four or five people from VT India. I have about... 13, 14 members, students, doctoral students from Thapar University. And now I can stay, I can keep my edge, competitive edge over our competitors, be it the Rice University or some other university, Tsinghua University in China or whatever it may be. So that's where the benefit comes from having this international collaboration, 
specifically now that we are big in India. So having the access to that talent and having them work on technologies in which we have edge over others, that, that's a big benefit. Yeah, it sounds like you're creating a lot, a lot of those intersections. That's right. Back to intersections, that's right. <laughs> what would you most like for people to know about international collaborations when it comes to research? You know, we have major problems facing humanity. And those problems are not local. Those are not U.S. problems. Those are not European problems. They are not Indian problems. And if engineers, engineers and scientists and humanists and artists and economists, we are going to live up to our mission of doing something useful for society or advancing the civilization, then we have to really come together globally. We want to become a global university. From a Virginia Tech perspective, I would personally like to see Blacksburg at the crossroads of civilizations, where we can, we don't have, we bring the world to you. We bring the world to us. You know, we are in a small place, but that doesn't mean intellectually we are a small place. And we want to bring rest of the intellect from all over the world to interact with our students. And in that process, reciprocity-wise, we can also go to other places and have our students experience that particular culture so that down the road we can use our resources to solve the major problem facing humanity. And in the process, if Virginia Tech global ranking goes up, so be it. <laughs> and thanks to Root for sharing his insights into the value of collaborating internationally when it comes to research and innovation. If you or someone you know would make for a great curious conversation, email me at traviskw at vt.edu. I'm Travis Williams, and this has been Virginia Tech's Curious Conversations.